This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There's an election coming up here in the province in the not-too-distant future and a municipal election. Uh, well, about a year from now, uh, November or so of, uh, of next year. But the uh, electioneering has already started with uh, some city councillors uh, suggesting that there be a series of summit meetings between you, me, the taxpayers, and uh, elected officials and those who want to be elected officials and city officials to sit down there and talk about exactly who pays for what. The uh, assertion here is, uh, and, and I guess the gem for this, the gem for this idea came from Councillor Samarula, uh, suggesting that Hamilton taxpayers need to be informed about exactly who pays for what, uh, how much of the city budget is actually mandated by provincial programs, and how little control they actually have over the budget. Well, is it going to work if they do these summits? Will people show up? Is it going to make a difference? A lot of questions. Not too many answers right now. I want to bring John Best into the conversation, publisher of the Bay Observer and political observer for a long time here in the Hamilton area. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Uh, boy, an awful lot to talk about today, but let's focus on what's happening municipally here. I, I, I interestingly saw the story and, and heard about the motion from the, the councillor and, and others who, by the way, are supportive of this idea. Uh, one of the first accusations I heard from a longtime political observer is what a great way to try to change the channel. Instead of focusing on some of the deficiencies that may be going on in Hamilton Council, just say, well, it's their fault. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, you could make that, that allegation. I, you know, to me, um, anything that, that improves uh, uh, our collective financial literacy is a good thing. Um, I guess my question would be, uh, you know, it, it, as we seem to have established pretty clearly that about half of the city budget is controlled essentially by provincial policy. That's well and good, but I guess the question is, what is the alternative would we be comfortable uh, seeing all of our tax dollars totally in control of uh, of this city council? And uh, you know, I'm I'm not sure that this council's demonstrated any great financial literacy either. So I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm the first to acknowledge that the province uh, does some things with our money that I don't approve of. But I'm not sure. You know, you 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 also need to figure out whether there is in fact uh, a better way. Well, if there is, uh, I guess the other question, John, is what are the chances of that better way being implemented? Uh, and I'm not trying to be overly cynical here. I'm trying to be pragmatic about it. Uh, downloading or the sharing of costs, uh, however you want to do it, I guess, depending on which side of that ledger you're on, uh, have been a reality here in this province for many, many years right now. Uh, you know, the, the current government will tell you, oh, well, yeah, it's not as bad as it used to be, and I guess they can make that point. But uh, what the alternative is to simply say you really and truly think that you're going to be able to pressure any future provincial government to simply say, yeah, we're going to upload all those costs. Don't you worry about that. We'll cover all this stuff. You guys just keep your money and you'll be fine on this. Uh, realistically, John, what are the chances? Well, I don't think they're very good. I mean, uh, this, this whole business of downloading and uploading came uh, with the Harris government, which is, uh, you know, we're, we're going back almost 20 years, but... We went through this major discussion, and I guess the the upshot of it was we traded education uh, spending, which was a municipal um, responsibility for things like welfare and and uh, other costs. But at the end of it all, I'm not sure anybody would say uh, it's really made any great difference. Uh, where you know people still feel overtaxed, and they also feel like there's all kinds of services that they'd like to have that they're not getting and and of course the 
the pinch point on all of this, uh, whether it's provincial or municipal, is infrastructure. We can, you know, to to meet the programming needs, we constantly squeeze the the infrastructure budget, and uh, the result is, uh, you know, the bad roads and crumbling uh, bridges and all of these other problems that we see. And and that's well taken. And and I'm not trying to be dismissive of what the council is trying to do here. The the inequity is 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 obvious. Uh, and it, by the way, this is not a new story. Uh, because city councils have been talking about this since 1995. We know that, John, and and I think they've been pretty articulate about it in a variety of ways, some better than others, certainly. But to suggest that, well, taxpayers have no idea, I, I'm not so sure that's the case. Uh, I really don't. I think I think that message has been forthcoming from Hamilton City Hall for about the last 20-odd years, 22 years, for instance. Uh, I, some people probably buy into it, and, and they're educated. Others, I just don't think it matters. I think what the question they seem to be asking is, that may be well and good, Counselor so-and-so, but what are you doing with the money you are spending? Why don't you be accountable for that? And that's where they seem to back off and say, well, don't, well, well, don't come at it for us. Now. Well, we should come after them for that. Well, and, and we've seen some work done by uh, the, the, the new city auditor uh, talking about excessive use of consultants, uh, uh, welfare uh, department that seemed to be pretty much out of control, uh, a department that was uh, focusing on writing checks, uh, but uh, had sort of ignored or fallen way short on its second responsibility, which is to try to get people working again. So, you know, it's it's great to say, well, you know, the, the level of government that's closest to the people should have the total say, and, and, you know, I think notionally I, I sort of agree with that, but the, the, the flip side of that is that there's got to be a high level of competence uh, in how those funds are administered, and, and that's both political and, and also at the staff level. And it's interesting because uh, the, uh, the CAO of Toronto just made his annual State of the Union address to, a, to an academic group there, and he said, you know, really what we're doing is uh, relentlessly pursuing the status quo. And he seemed to be kind of throwing his hands up a little bit uh, in Toronto, saying, you know, we, uh, we we have barely enough tax revenue to sort of maintain a bare-bones kind of service model, but we keep adding things on all the time. And I, I suspect that there's a bit of that happening here as well. Well, of course it is. And, and that, and, and, you know, unfortunately that's the way of life, but I mean, th- there's two elements to this and let's, let's look at, okay, what the council wants to do here is, is educate people, his phrase, to, so that they can make an informed decision in the provincial election, uh, which essentially, I'm sure he means, you know, to change the government that's at Queens Park right now. Well, uh, let's look at the other two options. The, uh, the NDP have traditionally have, what should we say, a, a lavish spending habit. Uh, the Conservatives are the one that initiated the downloading process in the first place. So, I mean, if you don't want this current government, that's all well and good. That's a decision the voters can make. But if they're expecting that there's going to be this la- huge sea change all of a sudden when uh, somebody else gets elected that says we're going to take all the pressure off cities, they're dreaming in technicolor, John. That's not going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the NDP, we know, um, are always ready to spend money uh, that we don't have. But... Uh, Patrick Brown has certainly said nothing that I've heard in in the last year that would suggest that he's going to suddenly become a a fiscal hawk either. Uh, You know, these structures are in place. Uh, They're supported by massive bureaucracies. And just to flip a switch uh, overnight is is going to be very difficult. 
And, and I guess the other question is, you know, uh, there's there's so much tax money going out at all three levels. There's a finite amount of tax revenue uh, available to governments, and, and we can rejig uh, who gets 49% and who gets 51%. You know, we can do all that. But at the end of the day, if there's no new money, uh, and and uh, the governments insist that everything is as lean as it can be, uh, I don't see change. Um, you know, the the problem we have is, generally speaking, a shortage of funds to do all the things that we think we should be doing. So here's here's the subplot to this, <laughs> and I'll, I'm going to lay a cliche out here. It's clean up your own backyard, and and I don't know that that's necessarily something that city councilors are comfortable hearing either. Uh, it's one thing to suggest that the province is ripping off cities like Hamilton and Toronto and Windsor, and, and there's, there's certainly evidence to show that's the case. You know, just look at the books, look at the numbers. It's there. We know that. But when anybody, yourself, myself, any number of other people, start questioning city spending, and as you mentioned, looking at an auditor's report and saying you guys are blowing money that you don't need to spend, or they talk about going to unnecessary OMB hearings, uh, whether it's for ward boundaries or for St. Leonard's House or for uh, home, Linwood Home, and on and on it goes. There's a long list of that stuff. Money that's misspent. Council gets indignant, or Waterfront Trust, let's talk about that. They become indignant that we would have the audacity to actually question their integrity and question their spending habits. So, you know, you can't suck and blow at the same time. If you're going to f- start preaching fiscal responsibility and fiscal fairness, you should, you know what, clean up your own act first, and council's not there yet. Well, and, and I take uh, some issue with the way financial information is presented to council. Um, when, you, when you see the way staff reports are written, quite, it'll say uh, there, there's kind of some boilerplate uh, box ticking that goes on with these reports. And the one area that they talk about is financial implications. I can't remember exactly how it's worded. But what staff will routinely put in there uh, under that heading is that if it doesn't result in an increase in the tax levy, they say there are no financial implications, which of course is not true because one of the options you have is to not spend the money or, or to spend less. So uh, to say there are no financial implications just because it doesn't result in a tax increase, I think it lulls a council into uh, you know kind of a false sense of security um, I, I really think that, that we need more uh, sharp questioning about fiscal matters on council, and that requires a higher level of financial literacy than is probably available around that table. Well, and I don't know that anybody's willing or able to do that around the city council table either. There's another element to this too, John, and and again, this is, in, in some people's mind, may simply be nothing more than a feel-good exercise. Uh, for those that are opposed to the current provincial government to be able to, to rail against them. And, and God knows there's enough to rail against with, with the record they've had in, in many instances over the last number of years. But is it really going to change anything? I mean, when they, if, it, it sounds like they're going to go ahead with this stuff. When they start holding these meetings, who are you going to see there? Is it going to be the people who usually show up, who usually are engaged, whether it's for political reasons or otherwise, uh, who are going to be there and they're going to have their say? Or is it going to be this, this uh, what the councillor seems to envision, this, this groundswell of support to say, yeah, we really need to find out because we want to make informed decisions? Uh, it tends to be the same folks most of the time who show up for meetings about any controversial issue like that. Some of them because, obviously, they have a political agenda. We get that. 
others who are just political active and politically active and they want to do something about that. Is it just going to be the same faces listening to the same stuff, saying the same things over and over again, and at the end of the day we end up in the same spot? Well, yeah, I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, you know, it's, let's face it, it's hard to get people to come out of their houses for any reason uh, these days. Uh, people are cocooned in, in houses with, uh, you know, with all the electronic toys that exist now. So, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge getting people to come out to meetings. And, and so, yeah, I, I suppose part of the uh, mission here has already been accomplished because you and I are sitting here talking about it, and it's been in the spectators. So that's probably, you know, the, the, the main objective. But I, but I don't want to be scornful of uh, attempts to educate the public either. I, I think, um, you know, through news coverage and so on, that uh, while there may not be a great turnout, there, you know, there may well be uh, some good information that, that, that's produced. But at the end of the day, uh, we're, as a taxpayers, we're really at a disadvantage because we have three levels of government. They're all taxing us. And their agendas are not aligned. So, you know, something the feds do could not only not help us, but could even contradict something the province is doing. Uh, you know, we've got a situation here in Hamilton right now where there's, there's infrastructure money available from the federal government, but we can't take advantage of it because the funding formula requires us to come up with one-third, and we just simply don't have the money. So you have these government programs that aren't aligned in any way, and that's part of the political process when you have, you know, uh, different governments of different stripes, and I, I don't see an end to that, frankly. Well, and, and like I say, this whole exercise, and I have nothing against the educating the public as well, those that want to be educated, you can't drag them kicking and screaming into these meetings. But is, is it really just going to be an opportunity to rail against the current government and, and say, you know, and shake your fist and say, you guys have got to do a better job uh, with the full knowledge? I mean, the people that are putting this on, with the full knowledge and realization, that's really probably not going to change a whole lot. I'm, I mean, you're absolutely right. We're taxed by three levels of government right now. They have different ideas of doing things. Uh, the fact that we're going to get a coordinated effort out of this uh, is, is, is likely not going to happen. And the most important element of this whole exercise that people need to know going in, well, before you nod this and say, hey, that's a great idea, is, is if since all three of these people, and I mean the federal, the provincial, and the municipal governments, if all three of them are not doing a very good job right now, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's, it's a pox on all of their houses to say, I'm going to point the finger at these guys because it's their fault. It's, you know what, it's all their faults, and they all have to clean their own act up together before they start pointing fingers at somebody else. Well, and, and, you know, it's uh, infantilizing in many ways when you see some of these news releases and tweets that come from these politicians. Um, you know, there's no question. Uh, all you got have to do is look at the steady stream of uh, social media tweets from our elected representatives, especially at the provincial level, uh, constantly talking about, uh, we're, you know, we're backing this, we're supporting that, we're spending money on this. And it... It, it feeds into this notion of government as Santa Claus that, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty hard to talk about fiscal uh, restraint when, when the government's uh, representatives encourage us to believe that they, that they are somehow, you know, coming down the chimney with bags of money for 
just about anything that you could possibly think about. Well, exactly. And, and, and then you have to contrast that with what you're hearing from the municipal government that simply said, look, at it. if we had total control, everything would be okay. And as you said at the beginning of this conversation, John, based on their track record over the last few years, I'm skeptical. It's going to be, uh, it, it's very difficult. I mean, this is, this is a problem that, that probably doesn't get solved, and unfortunately, until we reach some kind of a brick wall, some kind of a serious fiscal crisis. And, you know, uh, Fed's just discovered that they had a little more money coming in than they thought because the economy's moving along at a, a faster pace than it was forecast, and all you hear is a discussion about how we can spend that money uh, rather than, uh, you know, they keep talking about our debt as a, uh, you know, as a percentage of the gross national product. And yes, you know, you can, you can show that number going down. But at the end of the day, the, the actual amount of debt is going up. And, you know, with, that's, a, that's a problem that uh, nobody really wants to face up to. Exactly. As always, uh, John, thanks so much for the time. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks, Bill. John Best, of course, from the Bay Observer. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. How was the drive in today? How was the bus ride in today? Did it take a little longer? Did you have to wait and wait and wait for the bus to show up? Well, uh, late last week it was revealed that HSR riders are reporting buses as no-shows right across the city. They are apparently experiencing an unprecedented spike in absenteeism, people calling in sick for a variety of reasons, and it's having an impact on service. Dan McKinnon, General Manager of Public Works, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Dan. How are you today? Uh, I've had better days, Bill. How are you? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Well, the numbers don't lie, and, and therein lies the problem. I mean, you and I have talked about public transit and how important it is in this city and every city, for that matter, and the mantra for, for users and our track users is always, okay, is it affordable and is it reliable? Uh, that second part is uh, kind of up in the air right now. What's going on, Dan? Well, you uh, you covered it right there in your opening statements, Bill. We are uh, experiencing uh, extraordinary absenteeism numbers at the moment, and that's that's what's really the, the root cause of uh, a lot of the cancellation of uh, certain routes. And, uh, you know, I just want to start off by saying, you know, we understand that people have become uh, reliant on the bus service to get to work and to, to get to the places they need to get to in their lives. And, you know, canceling service in our mind is absolutely unacceptable. Um, that's not the kind of customer service we want HSR to be no- known for. And uh, so right now we're, it's, it's all hands on deck trying to figure out uh, how, we can, uh, how we can resolve this. Well, let's talk about some of the root causes. As you say, the, the, the given cause for this, as we say, is absenteeism. Uh, there's no massive flu epidemic going on. It's not as if there's a, there's a an influx of, of of diseases or something that seems to be happening here. Why why so much absenteeism all of a sudden? Well, it, that's a great question, and you know, absenteeism can become a very broad uh, discussion when you start to dig into the details. And that's what we're doing right now. Is we've had a a team of uh, staff working right over the weekend to try to uh, get into the data and and uh, the the reasons that were being given for the absenteeism to see what what's behind it and. There's nothing that, that today, there's nothing that's jumping out at us as being a single uh, single issue as far as the absenteeism, but uh, it is the root cause of what's happening. So we're still going to be working through the, the data and the numbers here to see if we can figure out what's happening. What's the policy when it comes to uh, to calling in sick for whatever the reason may be? Is it just, okay, you're not coming in, Dan, that's great, uh, get back to us when you're feeling better? Or is there a protocol they have to follow? Yeah, there is a protocol that, that has to be followed. Obviously, we, we, we want to know why uh, people are off sick, but... Uh, um, the details of that often um, we don't we don't necessarily have a right to know, 
but when the, when an absence occurs for longer than uh, a prescribed period of time, and uh, forgive me because the, the, the length of time escapes me at the moment, but we can require a doctor's note after a period of time. Um, so that's one of the things that we're, we're doing is we're trying to make sure that we, as much as possible, without uh, infringing on people's privacy, we want to know uh, if we can, uh, what what's the reason for the absence. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, it just it, it's resulting in, in a lack of service for our customers, and that's that's we know we know the kind of turmoil that's creating for the users of the system, especially in a time when, you know, we're trying to encourage people to use transit. We want them to be a a reasonable alternative for people, and um, this couldn't be this couldn't happen at a worse time. So you get absenteeism. I'm also told, and and maybe you can confirm this for us, that you're also running into a situation here where some drivers that you're asking to take on some overtime shifts are refusing. Is that true? We're starting to see a trend of that. Um, you know, I'll say it this way. Like, when we develop our, our route schedules, we plan on about 8% of uh, absenteeism. And so we're set up in such a manner that we can cover uh, those routes that the 8% represents without even incurring um, um, overtime as a result of the unplanned absence. So we're way beyond that. And typically, um, I think what happened over the summer, we had a number of operators that were willing to work the extra overtime. And um, so we, it wasn't manifesting itself in cancelled service. Uh, there are things that the union can do to help us out, and I know that they're going to be convening a meeting later on today to see if they can, uh, if there's mechanisms that they can use to help us out as well. We're hopeful that they will be able to see their way through that. Um, but yeah, the uh, again, it just it keeps coming down to the uh, to the absenteeism. Well, let me ask you something. I, I mean, when you see this going on, and I, I agree with you totally, I mean, every business, whether it's a city, uh, whether it's a, a private sector business, whatever, they, they factor in absenteeism. I mean, that's why they allot for sick days and things of this nature, and, and you, you work that into the, your, your plan. I get all that stuff. But it seems to be a, a, an aberration right now where all of a sudden there's so much more of this going on. And when you combine that with the fact that people are refusing uh, to work overtime shifts, it, it indicates to me that maybe there's a lot more going on here. That may be just the skeptic in me, but but uh, is 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 this uh, the union trying to send a message to to management about uh, about what's going on? Uh, I don't know. I, I know there's been some speculation about that in social media and in other areas, and uh, I mean I, I don't know that <laughs> that the union would announce that if that was to happen. But I mean there certainly seems to be some uh, uh, peculiar numbers going. Uh, or the, the the numbers seem to be peculiar in that the absenteeism has spiked a couple of points over the last few months, and the um, the willingness of drivers to work extra overtime is seems to have diminished around the same time. So um, th- that's a challenge, and we we don't know for certain one way or the other. But uh, we're you know we're going to continue to work with the union to see how we can help each other out here. Um, you know, over the last number of years, city council has poured a tremendous amount of money into the transit system. Uh, both in capital and operating, uh, you know, uh, investments over the last five years. Right now, we are in the midst of uh, executing a number of capital projects through the the PTIF program or the Public Transit Infrastructure Funding Program that came down from the federal government. We're making uh, between now and the end of February 2019, we're going to make about 70 million dollars worth of investments in our transit network for a variety of assets throughout the system. Much of that comes with an additional operating uh, expense as well. So. Um, it, it is disappointing that with all of that support that we've had from council and all of the attention and the, and I would say the optimism around trying to get people to ride transit uh, that we're experiencing the events that we've, we've seen the last few weeks. You, you know we're close to negotiating a contract with the ATU, are you? That, that's, uh, that's in the drawer someplace and not going to be looked at for a while, isn't it? Uh, we're only about a year, year and a half out, okay, I think, yeah. that, though. Yeah. Uh, the reason I'm asking is because, and again, I'm... I'm <laughs> 
I'm just trying to connect the dots here. When you see a big spike in people calling in sick, and then you see others refusing to work the overtime shifts, it, it, it very much smells to me like a work-to-rule campaign. And I know they're not saying that. Uh, but, but, you know, if it walks like a duck and, and quacks like a duck, uh, it just seems as if there's there's a considered effort here to try to send a message. Is there is there something going on that we're not aware of? Some uh, some uh, concerns that the union has expressed to management about uh, working conditions or something like this that has maybe motivated them to all of a sudden become ill. Well, I, I think one of the you know one of the the main kind of uh, things that the union does is they advocate for working conditions for their for their drivers. Right? Sure. So I, I think that you know the first two years of the ten year strategy that were implemented throughout 2016 and 2015, those measures were implemented not only to provide better uh, customer service to reduce pass-bys and overcrowding and that kind of thing, but what that also does is that improves the operating conditions under which our operators have to drive the bus. So I think we, we have been demonstrating a willingness and uh, to invest and to try to improve uh, the situation of the, the operators, their, their working conditions. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there, there's lots of speculation out there, but I, I'm really focused on, on, on the data and the evidence, and, and that's what we really want to focus on is what is the data and the evidence. And we don't want to draw conclusions before we've had a, an opportunity to really thoughtfully go through it and see what the data and the evidence is telling us. But there's, there's, there's no concern, there's no letter of concern or some complaint that's lodged someplace that, uh, that's sitting on somebody's desk right now that, that might explain why this is all of a sudden happening? Not, not in a comprehensive way. I mean, you know, going back to your comments about working conditions, I think that, you know, we've reached out to the union. Um, we're, we're trying to find ways that we can try to alleviate uh, some of the things that we've heard over the years that uh, create uh, kind of operating conditions that are not the best for the operators. Believe me, that it, it is not an easy job. I mean, there's nobody who interacts with the, uh, the community as much as our transit operators. And, um, you know, the stories uh, that, that I've heard and learned about over the last uh, year and a half since I've been in the, the role, um, it, it's a tough job. So we're, we're trying to find opportunities, and, and I think management's done a good job in trying to be creative and try to work with the union to find opportunities to alleviate some of those stressors in the, in, in the, in the roots and that kind of thing. But, uh, um, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing that, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep trying to do our best here. And listen, I don't disagree with you. I mean, I, I, I know a few people that do that for a living. And uh, and I, I got to tell you, it takes a special kind of person to do that. The interaction with the uh, the public on a daily basis, and we've heard stories anecdotally about drivers that have, have missed lunch breaks and other breaks because of of delays for could be traffic delays, not necessarily of their fault, etc. And and it's tough. There's there's a fair bit of pressure on on these people, uh, and we understand that and we get that. And you want to make sure that they're going to have the best possible working conditions here. But in the past, we've heard stories about, for instance, driver safety, because there have been uh, a flurry of incidents of, of in, you know, where people were trying to rob bus drivers, or there were assaults going on. And uh, now I'm maybe I'm missing something, but I don't hear a whole lot about that anymore. I'm not suggesting it doesn't happen, but maybe not with the frequency it has in the past. Uh, I don't know if that's because of new policies have been adopted or what. I'm I'm just wondering right now what is the inspiration for all of a sudden for a spike in this and. Uh, if there's a is a health reason for it or a physical reason for this, I get that. If it's stress, then maybe they should be having that discussion. Has uh, has management approached you about about working conditions and the stress that drivers have? Well, like, like I said earlier, I, I think that's an ongoing conversation that we need to continually have. You know, I had a an interesting conversation with a, a, an older operator up at the uh, the transit center there a few weeks ago, and he talked about what it was like to drive a bus thirty years ago versus now, and. You know, he, he, he was advocating how, how, how much better things are with, you know, air ride systems under your seat and, and all the kind of 
creature comforts that would exist in a bus now that didn't, you know, 30 years ago. But that doesn't mean we should stop kind of looking for ways to make it better for the operator as well. And, you know, another thing that people may not appreciate is that it's not just about driving the bus. The first priority is to drive the bus on schedule and, and uh, on time and safely, obviously. But the, the second most important um, um, aspect of an operator's job is to enforce our fare policies. And that's where you start to get into conflict uh, with certain customers who, for whatever reason, are not motivated to, to pay the proper fare or trying to do things that um, aren't necessarily acceptable. And, and so that, that certainly is, that's part of the job. I mean, that's that's in the job description, and that it's an unpleasant part of the job sometimes, um, but that's there's not a heck of a lot we can do about that. But we are continually, I would say we're continually working with the union to find ways to make it safer. Uh, we're installing, um, we're going to be installing uh, cameras on the buses, uh, over time, we'll be more and more. We'll be getting away from, you know, um, paper media to, to as far as a payment method. And when you go to, you know, the Presto cards and that kind of thing, all of those things uh, in the aggregate start to diminish the opportunity for people to play games when they're getting on the bus, which in turn makes it better for the operator because it makes it easier to enforce our fare policies. So, what are you going to do in the short term here for the people that said, "Look, I waited forty minutes for a bus today, and it should have been ten minutes." Uh, what's going on here? Uh, you can't put more buses on the road if you don't have people to operate them. Absolutely, and, and and like I said, we are it's all hands on deck right now for us to try to figure out um, how we can uh, what levers we can pull to uh, to improve the situation. We're certainly hopeful that the union can see its way clear to to try to help us out with this and. Uh, Hopefully, there's some some good news in the in the short term on that as well. And um, for those people who are, uh, you know, hopefully people who aren't well, hopefully they're going to get better and they're going to come back to work. And those folks who felt maybe they couldn't do the overtime, uh, maybe they've got the strength to come in and do a bit more overtime for us. Have you reached out to the union to have those discussions? Absolutely, we've been in constant dialogue with them uh, uh, throughout this, and uh, I know that uh, I believe that they may be getting together today to have a conversation about it too. So we're hopefully we're hoping that there's going to be a positive outcome from that. I'm just looking at this as an observer here, but I mean, I, you know, when you hear a story like this and we see this spike in absenteeism and, and, and the refusal by some folks to, to even work some of these overtime shifts, and, and I'm not suggesting that, well, they should have to do that. If they say, you know, you can't do that. You can't demand that of people. And I'm sure that some of these absenteeisms, maybe even most of them are legitimate. And maybe there are some legitimate reasons why people are refusing overtime shifts. I I understand that, and I'm not suggesting that everybody's colluding here in a situation like this. But here's here's the greater problem, as as a taxpayer that I'm looking at right now, when I see this with the current HSR system right now, and I figure that this is the same union, the ATU, that is asking to take on even more responsibility by managing and operating and 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 staffing the LRT system when it comes in here. I'm not so sure if that's such a good move. And it just that's only going to add pressure. That's only going to put more pressure on on the, those employees right now. And I, I I think a situation like this and a scenario like this is sending a bad message to transit users and potentially to future transit users when they look at this and say, well, maybe these guys shouldn't be in control of of LRT when that comes in. Maybe maybe they're not able to handle that. Well, I uh, don't. Uh don't disagree with your observations there, Bill. Uh, you know, it is, it, is, uh, it is unfortunate timing for a variety of reasons. Is, is that part of the conversation? And I'm, I'm hoping some city councilors are listening to this right now, too, because I think it's, it's worthy part of the conversation. And again, I'm not pointing blame here. I'm simply saying when you look at something like this, you have to ask yourself, if there's something flagrant that's going on with working conditions, uh, then, you know, they, they need to be vocal about this by simply not showing up uh, in the absence of information comes speculation, and speculation can really tarnish everybody. 
Yeah, I think that conversation is probably going to have to happen at a political level. And like I said earlier, um, you know, my focus right now is to just, you know, do a really good job at collecting all the, you know, all the important data, analyzing it and seeing what the data and the evidence is telling us. And then, uh, you know, informing council with respect to that. Um, you know, we try to try to stay away from the speculation. And as far as, you know, the LRT discussion, I don't, I don't know that that's a conversation that's going to happen at a staff level. Well, I, I, the reason I'm bringing it up is because I had a conversation with somebody who has some knowledge of the goings-on at Queen's Park. Let me just put it that way, uh, who, who does some work with a number of the people in the bureaucratic level. And this, this topic came up over the weekend. They said, you know, because I talked about, hey, how come Metrolinx hasn't weighed in on this? And they said, you know what's going on with the drivers there right now? And I, I said, yeah, I just saw the story about it on Friday. I heard about it on CHML News. And he says, don't think that that's not weighing into why the province is dragging their heels on this. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. Dan, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. And good luck with this. I, I hope you can find a resolution that's going to be satisfactory to everybody. Dan McKinnon, of course, is the general manager of Public Works. And, of course, that includes HSR and what's going on. Uh, I, I find the whole thing frustrating, and you know that I've had Eric Tuck on this program many times, and I'm sympathetic to an awful lot of the concerns that the ATU is raising here in this city about transit use and about driving conditions and working conditions. We get all that. But you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? Because we've had complaints, and I know city councilors have all had a, a huge increase, we're told, of complaints from transit users that say, look it, you know, I, the service here is even worse than it used to be. And we get the explanation now from HSR that, well, because there's a real spike in absenteeism. You would expect that maybe in February or March during flu season. Oh, you know, they're sick today. Okay, they can't cover the shift. But it's, it's, a, it's a rather toxic combination when all of a sudden there's a spike in absenteeism and there's a, a, a reticence on behalf of other employees to work the overtime shifts. Because they know, invariably, that that's going to cause a reduction in service. Yeah, got something that's really sticking in your craw that you want the city to look after? Then go public about it and talk about it and have that debate. But to do it this way raises some doubts about efficacy. This is a city that is struggling right now to try to sell public transit to the people in this community. Ridership is going down. It's not going up. And the only way this place, it's, it's never going to become profitable, nor does anybody, I think, have that expectation. But you need more people riding transit. And that's not happening now. The numbers have gone down, and then they hear a story like this, and they say, well, it's not going to be reliable. I can't count on the fact that the bus is going to be there when I need it. Then that just turns people off public transit altogether and makes it even de more difficult to sell. Just wondering if they're just cutting off their nose to spite their face. Talk to your counselor. See what's going on. Because we're not getting too many answers right now. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The number one political story is south of the border this morning with the announcement that uh, Paul Manafort, former campaign manager in the Donald Trump campaign, uh, has asked to and is indeed surrendered to the FBI. He walked into the Washington offices earlier this morning and uh, faces a bevy of charges uh, with the Russian collusion investigation. Uh, he'll appear in court, we're told, at about 1.30 this afternoon to actually face and answer the charges. Uh, his associate, uh, Gates, is also, Robert Gates, has also been uh, told to surrender. Uh, no word on what's happening with Gates as of yet. 
Joining us to talk about this and the implications is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about, uh, first and foremost, the news. We we knew this was about to happen. We were told late last week, Elliot, that uh, charges were pending and that uh, Mueller's office was going to make some sort of announcement on Monday. Uh, and, of course, the speculation started about who it was going to be. Uh, the fact that Manafort was uh, first up on this, was that a surprise? Well, we should also start with the fact these aren't just charges. He was arrested. Yeah. Uh, so the important opening comment is a very senior person uh, close to the president of the United States has now been arrested. But we have to emphasize that uh, it's not in relationship to anything at the moment connected to the campaign or the president. So what, is it a surprise it's Manafort? No. Uh, he, <laughs> names have been swirling around for a long time, and he and General Michael Flynn, uh, the national security advisor briefly, were the two top names. In terms of senior people that might be indicted, Paul Manafort had a, let's say, uh, shady, mysterious business past before he was hired to run the campaign of Donald Trump. Well, it, which included money uh, from various sources, of course. Uh, the the charges against him, and we've I, it's a pretty long document, but I mean, some of the highlights that jump out at me here, uh, the, they're alleging $75 million yeah. uh, was involved in this, uh, of, of which a sizable amount uh, Manafort himself laundered. Uh, I guess the, the charge that really sticks out, though, when you look at this, Elliot, is conspiracy against the United States. That tells me this is more than just a banking procedure. Well, we're playing with... Uh technical and legal terms here, and a lot of lawyers will better chip in. The conspiracy seems to be relating actually to money, three things, money laundering, tax evasion, and failing to register as a foreign lobbyist. So it's not a conspiracy in the sense of conspiracy theorists or conspiring to, uh, to have the election uh, affected by Russian behavior or, that, or whatever the Mueller investigation might turn up in that regard. So it is indeed a, an awesome, scary term, but really, uh, they might get him on tax evasion and money laundering, and that's the charges, and failing to register as a foreign lobbyist. But this is not small money. We're talking about $75 million. And it, the indictment that you've been reading also goes on to say it was used to, to finance a lavish lifestyle, and then they list a number of properties that he's bought and so forth. We, we can speculate, and, and we will, and many others will over the next couple of hours and days, I guess, about uh, how this is going to play in Washington. Uh, Trump has not responded to this on Twitter, as usually it is, does with most news stories. We're told he has a very busy schedule today, so we have not heard from him officially, or on Twitter, I guess, for that matter. But the speculation is right now is that the uh, the defense from, from POTUS is simply going to be, well, that's Manafort. I mean, you know, we he wasn't part of the campaign during the presidential run, has nothing at all to do with us, nothing to see here. Is that going to wash? We'll see if it washes. The Because you're speaking about political impact, yeah. not legal impact. Uh, yes, there obviously will be an effort to distance themselves. Uh, the earlier said, well, he worked his... For us for a little while. Well, okay. <laughs> so that didn't uh, that didn't help. the The real issue. Getting a call waiting beep there. So uh, my apologies. The um, real issue here is to what degree will this affect the presidency of the United States? Is Donald Trump ever going to be brought into this? 
So we have to watch the defense right now. The best defense right now for Donald Trump would be uh, proceed to be presidential. I've just gotten off the plane last night from Japan where they are eagerly awaiting, or perhaps with some trepidation, awaiting the arrival of the president of the United States as part of his tour of Asia. So this is an excellent time for the president to get out of Dodge. Uh, he can go overseas. He, he can go to South Korea and uh, Japan and, and uh, Beijing and the Philippines and act very presidential and talk only about the security of America and let everybody else worry about these petty little uh, sideshows back home. We'll have to see if he's got the discipline uh, and if also the news uh, the weight of the news itself will p- permit that to be a successful strategy. Does he have the wherewithal to do that? And, and the reason I ask is because, you know, from a precedent standpoint, uh, even in the summertime when some of the, the allegations about, you know, disunity in, in the Trump administration and some of the firings that occurred uh, were rampant, and then, of course, he was off to Europe for a few days, and he couldn't help himself. I mean, he, he made one or two speeches off the teleprompter, and, and people said, ah, there he is being presidential. But but I guess you know he got the best of himself and all of a sudden started speaking off the cuff and tweeting again and 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 right back into that maelstrom uh, that that you know, has become so famous now for Trump and uh, can can he can he divorce himself from this? He's not shown much ability in the past to control his behavior, and also we should keep in mind another part of this. It's not uh, what you and I hear or the pundits hear or the news media hears. It's what his base hears. So when you hear him making statements, it's, he's really not addressing uh, the wider audience as much as he's addressing the people who brought him to power and can keep him in power. He's going to be tailoring a message which he thinks is effective for the people that believe in him. And we should keep that in mind no matter what it is he turns out to say. And the other element of this, and there was just a story, of course, this morning uh, about approval ratings in the states, and Trump's yeah. approval ratings, of course, are lower than ever. But the the numbers, if you peel back a couple of the layers that I've seen anyway, some of the reports, Elliot, suggest that, yeah, those numbers are going down, but the numbers within his base are pretty steady. Yes, and that's, that's what I'm pleased to put your finger on that, Bill, because that's what's often overlooked. Whatever you hear out of Washington, whatever we read, all the all the early morning tweets and so forth, all of this is feeding the feeding chum to the reporters and protecting him against uh, any any threat to his base. So, feed the base is really the the mantra of this administration, and the base so far is holding firm. It's I've been watching this as closely as one can. There is no mass erosion or defective uh, defections from the base. Now he's got a lot of the really important Republican stalwarts that he's feuding with, and. Uh, can they carry any weight with that same base? That's where the big debate's going to be, and it's in the primaries. And and we've seen this already with some of the tweets, not today, obviously, because of this new news with Manafort, but uh, I mean, even over the weekend, Elliot, uh, where the tweets were again directed at the well, public enemy number one to Trump's base, which, of course, is Hillary Clinton, and simply changing the channel and say it's all about her. She's, she's the guilty one. She's the, and on and on it goes. And, of course, they eat that stuff up. Yes, he has a little problem there because the things he's talking about at this time about uh, the Clinton people. Remember, the Republican Party's invested in Clinton hating. They, they've got a treasure chest built up over a long time of Clinton bashing uh, with their base, the, the, the broad Republican base. What they can't do this time is <laughs> go on about her emails as effectively since it's turned out that since the election, a lot of the people around Donald Trump have been using private emails, including Jared Kushner. 
So they're talking about something obscure, uh, about uh, about a uranium and a deal, and it might hurt the security of America. But that one's a little harder to sell than she's a crook because of her emails. How far will Trump go to try to defend himself here? Uh, the speculation is, is ramped up again even this morning, Elliot, that uh, that he still could fire uh, Mueller in in this situation, not unlike what happened with Archibald Cox back in the, the Watergate things with Nixon many, many years ago. It, it didn't happen over this weekend. No, it no. Saturday night massacre. We had a Saturday <laughs> night. Yeah, but there's, there's another Saturday night coming up, Elliot. <laughs> there's, there's more Saturday night. Yes, uh, it'll be very tricky. It could certainly happen. Congress... Uh, it's been suggested should just cut off the funding, and that's possible, but it's very difficult. Uh, that's being explored. Can Congress, in fact, cut off the money to, to conduct the, that investigation by Mueller? And the answer is, well, it might be possible, but it's not very easy. And would the Republicans have the stomach for it anyway? So we'll have to watch that part. Could he go ahead and fire? Well, he'd first have to fire his deputy attorney general, who's not likely to, who, you know, who wrote the mandate for Mueller, then the next person up would have to, in line, would have to come in. Would she, uh, in turn, do that? Does he have to keep firing people till he gets somebody pliant who can, who can uh, say, oh, sure, I'll go along? It would be very messy indeed, and it might not help his case. But but will the American people buy that? I mean, we've talked about how, how his base is, is going to be with him no matter what. So whatever he says, no matter what he does, they're going to be on side with him. But but will the American people tolerate uh, a, a president who's under investigation or an administration that's under investigation firing the person that's trying to lead that investigation? Will they simply say, whoa, wait a second, that's, that's, that's not cricket. That's not the sort of thing that you're supposed to do. Cricket doesn't matter to the base. No kidding. The base is saying, well, of course, the, you know, they're out to get us. Us, not him. Us. Uh, they don't, you know, he's our voice and they're, they're, they're out to silence him. The whole issue here ultimately can come down to, is there an indictable offense anywhere? Now, what we have today, to circle this, is, is we actually have somebody who's arrested. The Mueller investigation has to come up with something that, it's a technical term, they have to prove that there's charges that might possibly lead to a conviction in regard to the president himself, in regard to collusion. So if... If they're following only that, they may never, we don't know what will show up. We don't know what they might find, but uh, it's, that's a high, very high bar. If they end up, however, going after uh, closer and closer circles around the president on tax evasion, on, on money laundering of, of this type, but essentially malfeasance over money might actually, be, you know, follow the money, might actually bring down the president more than these other charges. Well, it's the old idea about Al Capone actually went to jail for income tax evasion, That's not for right. any of the other number of things that he was uh, charged with. But, but, and how close that circle can get. I mean, I, I, I'll think of another scandal, the Iran-Contra scandal, of course, from the 1980s, uh, where, again, uh, the, the Congress and the, and the investigative committees at that time were trying to move all the way into the White House to Reagan. Never got that far. I mean, there was the Oliver North scenario and, and others. Uh, that were implicated, and, and actually there was some culpability there. But they never could prove that link that somebody in the, in the, the Oval Office knew what was going on. Uh, and, and, and obviously that's, that's the link. That's what happened in Watergate, but we tend to forget that. That took a long time. It took years for that to happen. Yes, the unindicted co-conspirator of Richard Nixon arguably could have applied to Ronald Reagan, but they never could, uh, there was never anything that closed that particular deal, and Ronald Reagan is still a venerated figure in American history as opposed to Nixon, who's gone down, you know, who had to resign. 
as an unindicted co-conspirator. So uh, we are seeing murkier and murkier waters around the President of the United States. If it stops with uh, this particular arrest, and it is an arrest, if it stops with this arrest and it doesn't go any further, then it can be disavowed by the president. It has nothing to do with me. If, however, even if nothing directly affects the president, but more and more people around him end up closer and closer to him, or even uh, outer circles but connected to him, end up also under arrest, it certainly cr- uh, creates a terrible cloud around his presidency. What's it going to take? Is there going to be a, a, a pivotal moment here? I mean, again, I want to go back to Watergate, and one of the pivotal moments of that investigation was when the White House counsel, John Dean, I, I yeah. hate to use the term flip, but essentially said, yeah, I'll give testimony. Uh, I don't know if Manafort's that guy that would actually flip to try to get a better deal for himself. I'm, uh, I know he's, he's made deals in the past, but is the investigative team going to need somebody like that, one of those insiders, to say, and I don't mean a deep throat, I mean a high-profile individual, to say, yeah, you got us? Well, Manafort might be that guy. Really? I mean, yes, because he's been the connection to the Russians. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> and he was there at a key time, and his the other person involved, uh, another fellow named Gates, there's more than one Gates in Washington, but... Uh, he actually stayed on. Uh, he was he managed the inauguration. You know that would led to the largest crowds in American history. Oh yeah, and so yeah. forth. So he has stayed close to the president after the election. Uh, and he's been charged as well. Yes, he's charged equally. We'll have to see what the, who gets charged. But Manafort potentially, potentially is facing a lot of years in jail, and potentially has information that might lead back toward the president in exchange for a deal. But all of that's hypothetical. Watergate started out with a couple of arrests of, of crooks, uh, you know, the yeah. break-in at the hotel, etc. Uh, and it landed to so many other names eventually, that the, and the dominoes started to fall, and the accusations against John Mitchell, the attorney general, and things of that nature. Uh, do you get the sense, and I know it's early days yet, since the, you know these, these charges were just laid uh, this morning, or officially laid anyway, Elliot, uh, is this is this the end of the investigation or just the beginning of the first part or the end of the first part? Well, we talked about the possibility of Mueller getting fired. Yeah, I suspect he's going to move fast. So if he and he's got a crack team of investigators, and it hasn't been noticed lately, but Comey's replacement as head of the FBI was a specialist specialist in white collar crime. So the FBI might be involved here. We don't know. My guess is that Mueller's um, team is going to be methodical thorough, they are professional prosecutors, but they're likely to also move with some urgency. We don't know where this will lead as of this morning. It's certainly not good news for the president, and it isn't good news for the presidency of, of America. Uh, breaking, I, I'm sure you heard this just a couple of minutes ago, but we just got this on Twitter, that George Papadopoulos, foreign policy advisor for the Trump campaign, uh, has secretly pleaded guilty to uh, giving false statements to the FBI during his previous testimony. So the the plot thickens. Yes, and false testimony, incidentally, is uh, one of the charges against uh, Manafort and, and Gates. Uh, they apparently didn't. Pr- so all of these things accumulate, and now the force of the law is coming into play. If you go back even farther, uh, one of the darkest moments in American history was the McCarthy period. Yeah. And how did all that end? It ended with one honest judge, uh, an army judge at that, who just said, you know, you, there's the law here, and you've, you've gone over it. And that was the end of the McCarthy era. It just blew that darkness away. 
Well, we'll follow this as it uh, develops or doesn't, I suppose, over the next little while. Always great to get your perspective on this. Elliot, thanks so much for the time today. You're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, Emeritus Professor in Political Science at Carleton University, specializing in U.S. politics. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.